You're tuning in to a Patreon-exclusive segment of Oats for Breakfast. In the segment, we'll be continuing the discussion we've been having about how to build socialism in the context in which we find ourselves. So, where do we leave off our discussion? So, I think we were talking about uh, whether, you know, what is the role of disruption in socialist politics? Is it to so show opposition? Is it a way to get attention? How do we contend with, you know, a lot of ordinary people for whom... Um, disruptive tactics might seem um, a little too disruptive or kind of just dangerous and illegal. Um, so what do we mean when we say disruption? Who are we envisioning is going to take part in it? What do we see? Do we see that at anything more than theatrics? Um, well, I'll try and take that on. Um, yeah, I think that disruption or different forms of direct action is a really important part of socialist politics and radical politics in terms of one, um, I, I feel like when people engage in those kind of actions, it does, um, it does raise their consciousness. It does radicalize them. And I think depending on um, the current political, like certain political context, we have seen different forms of disruption that have been incredibly empowering. So for example, if we take um, different forms of direct action of indigenous communities around sovereignty, I think that has, um, you know, raised incredibly amount of really good skills and also analysis coming from those communities. In fact, when I think of direct action, I often look to those communities for direction and for, for ideas as well. And I think also when, you know, we've seen histories of massive amounts of cuts, uh, people can't, like literally can't, based on like their um, well-being, their health, their life, they can't wait for another three years for an election, so they need to respond. And so I don't think it's universal. Like, I don't think we can get a broad consensus of people. But what's really interesting now, as people are kind of debating the merits of a general strike, is at the time, um, two significant events that are happening right now in Sudan and also in Hong Kong, where actually like traditional forms of direct action are being utilized right now to change the government or shift policy. Um, obviously, it's, I'm not romanticizing it, romanticizing it. It's been very brutal and violent. But we are seeing how that kind of organizing has led to masses get to the streets over the, you know, unhappiness of a policy like in Hong Kong or of a government like in Sudan. And so I think, um, I do think that socialists do need to take, um, I think it's a matter again of um, being able to organize actions and hopefully work on the messaging, um, work on the organizing so they can capture people's imagination. And I think it has to be, again, multi-pronged. So that's not just like one action and that's it. There's one action and there's a the next step and the next step and those things escalate. Yeah, I, I I broadly agree with what Charmaine said. And, you know, I don't think there's any point in being a fetishist about any particular tactic. That could be electoralism. I mean, you can diagnose social democracy as a fetishism of electoralism, right, as a tactic. And you can call, say, some currents of the anarchist left fetishize uh, direct action as a tactic. And you really have to look at the case. But uh, I like how Charmaine set it out when she said, you know, it can't just be a sort of a one-off. It has to be a part of a campaign. It has to escalate. It has to maintain people's engagement rather than diminish it. And so in those cases, uh, I think it makes sense. And yeah, we're not in a place here where 
insurrection, if that's what we mean by revolution, is on is on the table. Um, yet, you know, there are times when I think Hong Kong is a good example where there is a functioning electoral system. Yet, this was the only way that particular anti-democratic change was going to be resisted and, and overturned with this mass mobilization. And likewise in the Sudan, I think, you know, the circumstances sort of dictated that that's what, uh, what was needed. And here, you know, the thing with the general strike, so we then come to uh, sort of building on Charmin's point about there needing to be a sustained campaign that is going somewhere, right? If we look to the days of action where there was massive mobilization and there were sort of one or two day general strikes, rotating general strikes, they required millions of dollars to organize, right? And then they stopped, right? The Harris government just had to say, okay, we're going to wait this out. We're at a different political moment now. I think the current governments here are more vulnerable than Harris was at that time. But I do think to, to contemplate a general strike, like the level of organization that's required for that, and I think that has to be, that's still where a socialist left wants to get to because in terms of its capacity, because that's the level of organization you need to achieve transformational change. Like if you can't pull that off, you don't really have the power to do it. Now, it doesn't mean there aren't things you can't do in between or sort of more targeted actions. I think that's, or, or more localized. I think that's true. But I, I think it's also useful to think about if you want to take the general strike as a sort of a thought exercise, you need to have the ideological commitment or just the belief that this is worth doing because of what we're doing it for. You need to have organizational commitment because you need to, if you want to carry it through more than a few days, like sooner or later people need to get paid or they're, they're got to stop them from being evicted or their water turned off or whatever it is. Like you need huge capacity to support each other and also to bring food in because food runs out after a few days in the stores. And so just to think all those things through and the level of organization required, we're just not there yet for a sustained general strike. But for example, this provincial government might be weak, so weak that a one day general strike has a different impact than it did in the Harris days, right? Because maybe the media will be more sympathetic to it, or maybe, you know, we don't, that's a, an assessment I think that needs to be made. I don't know if that's on the table for the labor movement even, but yeah, in terms of disruption, I think uh, strikes have to be a part of it. And then the question is, where is the leverage now? Because of the change in configuration of the economy, a lot of it is about shutting down distribution of things or shutting down transportation because there aren't massive industries anymore that can be shut down in the same way. Uh, and I don't know if that vulnerability will you know, I don't know where the, the pressure points are in the society. So, but those are, that's a type of thinking, I think, when we're talking about disruption. Um, and, and I think if you think of what is required to carry that out, it starts to give you a sense of what a left organization has to build towards. Yeah, I think, I mean, my sense is that in the usual cases when leftists talk about disruption, at least my experience has been that we're generally talking about really small scale disruptive actions of very small groups of activists who are very marginal, even on the left. And that the way that the actions are planned and executed 
tends to not really be with the vision for or with even a strategy to try and get a lot of people on board, uh, either as supporters or as people who are involved. So in my mind, the sort of usual ways of disruption is very different than a strike and certainly a general strike, which I think by its nature needs a huge collective to come together to make it happen. Like uh, if only one worker or two workers doesn't show up to for a day of work, that's not a strike. Like By its nature, it needs to be like a large swath or the whole workplace. Um, and certainly a general strike would need, you know, uh, a huge segment uh, of the society to do it. And I mean, I, of course, there's ways to build towards that, but I think there, uh, it's more the collective forms of disruption which require the kind of, you have to talk to people who you would otherwise not talk to, who probably wouldn't be right away on board with doing something disruptive that I think is qualitatively different than the usual kinds of disruptions that we do and I think that uh, actually does help to build so the stuff that you're saying Shermin of like of consciousness raising of capacity building of um, increasing the spectrum of possibilities for what people are willing to do um, I think that really can only happen when the the point is it involve a lot of people in something in a strike or in a general strike which I think that like for whatever reasons a lot of leftists tend to enjoy being marginal um, and I've been really hesitant, um, towards like disruptive tactics of like direct action stuff, mostly because like whenever I've seen it happen, even as a leftist, like I find it's hard to build support for that among like ordinary working class people that I know. So, um, my fear is that it often ends up being used as a substitute for, doing the sort of uh, more difficult work of talking to people who might not immediately be on board and have to be won over, which then would also mean that it probably can't be as radical an action. It would have to be something that more people are on board and more comfortable with. Um, but I think, so in, in that way, I feel like strikes are qualitatively different. I think that those kinds of disruptions are, of course, like at the heart of what Marxists understand to be working class power in a capitalist society. By qualitatively different, you mean in order for them to work, they have to have mass buy-in or they have to have buy-in of a large group of people. That in their very nature is that they need a large group of people, right. whereas for other kinds of disruptions, you can do it with two or three people. But even strikes may or may not work with like large groups of people. Um, but at least in the strike, by nature, it's a collective, bigger collective that is required. Right. I mean, I think it really depends... I think it really depends on the goals of these actions, right? Like I, I am supportive of, you know, a few people um, locking down to a pipeline to just to show awareness about the impacts of of, of the pipeline. Um, you know, if that's their goal, like some people just do direct actions, like we just want to show awareness, you know. Um, but a lot of direct actions do have demands attached to them, and they may not work the first time. It does have to escalate. Like you can't just like call journal strike tomorrow. Um, but you can have you can build up to it by smaller actions that may or may not be disruptive, but then it can build up on that to something larger. And also, I'm I'm super. Um, I think we all ha have a lot to learn from the high school walkouts 
um, which took, I mean, it's really funny going to these union conventions and they're talking about like, yeah, the money that we have to spend in organizing, like lamenting about having to pay for organizers to fight for it. All those high school walkouts happened with zero dollars. It was just like all social media and Instagram. And um, and I feel like they have um, a lot of mass support behind them. I think a lot of people are really excited for like the for youth to do that. Um, so that element. But I do think that... Um, like if we rely on like unions and parties, which I feel like are bureaucracies that will then be like, oh, the money, the resources, things like that. I feel like a lot of radical social movements um, were based on just like will and that we and that activists kind of provided for each other, you know, um, like we, you know, it's great to spend money on like, you know, an organizer, but I don't think it's um, necessary. And I think a lot of really successful, you know, disruptions, direct actions or movements have happened with little to zero resources. And I think the high school walkouts, like these are kids with no money have shown that, you know, like they just like stole art supplies from their school <laughs> and went at it. Allegedly. Yeah. yeah. I'm not meaning to incriminate anyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or a more complicated example, the yellow vests in France. Uh, also seemingly, I don't know the accuracy of this, but certainly the impression I've gotten is that it's largely organized on social media and it's, it's, it's relatively spontaneous, not that we want to rely on spontaneism, but just to build on what Sadio was saying earlier, I mean, I don't think, I, I've never been convinced by the propaganda of the deed as a sort of rationale for, it doesn't seem to work. I think you have to evaluate, you do have to... What is that? Oh, well, the propaganda of the deed is the idea that through some sort of direct action or it could be property vandalism or it could be something more you know even an act of violence uh that i, I can't articulate it fairly because i really don't believe in it but i guess the it'll expose the violent nature by triggering a sort of a violent backlash it will expose the intrinsically violent nature of the capitalist state and the scales will fall from people's eyes and they'll rise up then spontaneously to fight and that doesn't take into account what we were talking about in the earlier part of our conversation around hegemony and hegemonic views and so you know if you look at remember when Richard, punching Richard Spencer or punching a Nazi became a meme. And even liberals were sharing it gleefully and saying, this is great. Well, that shows you the difference because Nazism is still beyond the pale in liberal democracy, capitalist liberal democracy. And there's sort of a sense that it's okay to punch a Nazi, but it's not okay to smash a Starbucks window, right? Because that's not seen as the same, right? That's not understood in the same way. So you have to look at the hegemonic values in, in evaluating how that kind of direct action is going to be received. And that, I think, is a sort of the Gramscian take that a socialist can bring to thinking about those things and how does it build. So it doesn't just stop here, but where does it go? And how is it going to, is it going to alienate people and actually justify repression without bringing new people in? Or is it actually going to bring people in? Yeah, I think I think that's very true. And I think, Shamin, your earlier point about um, what role like, parties and unions play in sort of determining how deception happens and what what it looks like, I think that's a that's an interesting question, right? Because on the one hand, we have examples of mass spontaneous actions happening. And sometimes enduring, but by and large, when spontaneous actions happen, it seems like they fade away really quickly. And to connect to your point about hegemony, Corbin, and our earlier discussion about um, what are the different 
conditions under which right and left ideologies get taken up and what sort of uh, prospects they have. I think a huge thing in the States, I mean, I would, um, I would bet is that with the alt-right and the radical right, a sort of condition of possibility for it was, you know, a lot of the churches and like how embedded they are in a lot of communities and um, and how much they already have uh, hegemony in, in many communities. And, and of course, there's a political spectrum even among churches in the U.S., but that there tends to be uh, a rightward tilt there. And so for that to already be there and churches as mass organizations with a lot of resources at their disposal being there as a as a base uh, that a lot of Republican and further right wing uh, groups have used to build on, I think that that does speak to the importance of having a base and securing a base that has its ability to generate its resources and a, and a sort of self reproducing kind of way that is apart from the electoral realm, for example, and so. For us in the left, like in the absence of mass left organizations um, and even like good, um, solid, strong unions, we don't have the same kind of base and like conditions of possibility there. But I think without those, we cannot, I think that we have no hope of actually achieving hegemonic status uh, or counter hegemonic status. Um, and so I think where, where unions and where parties, maybe not exist, maybe like, you know, yet to exist parties uh, don't exist. I think we can't afford to not try to build those spaces. I agree, though. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, um, yeah, again, I mean, I'm always trying to think of like a, a multi-prong approach. Like I'm, I'm always, my struggle with socialist organizations is that I, um, I believe in a lot of different tendencies, also a lot of anarchist tendencies. Like a lot of my direct action stuff has come from actually traditions of working with anarchists and seeing um, a lot of success, uh, I mean, a lot of failure, but also some success where sometimes when, you know, the capitalist machine is trampling over people's rights and you don't have capacity yet to like build that mass organization, build mass hegemony, um, you know, to confront it. Uh, in a public way, um, can inspire imagination of people who aren't, or aren't politicized. I don't think, and for example, um, for indigenous struggle, um, there's, I don't think anytime soon they're going to reach that level that we're talking about in terms of like mass buy-in when there's like, and, and just thinking of like, just like how, you know, mainstream the racism and resentment is of uh, against indigenous people. But, um, but I will support, even if they're a small community, them blocking um, even if they don't have the support of the masses of people, I don't think that matters. So yeah, I think I think that activists. Um, I'm not trying to like. Um, um, there was that term being used of like infantile opportunism or whatever, or just like trying to be like super radical about thinking. I forget what that term is. Um, I'm not promoting that. Um, I just think that sometimes different ways to address a political problem means different things. And I'm not. I'm never saying like only direct action, nothing else, just like electoral politics. But I. It's funny because I've been asking a lot. I've been asked a lot to reflect on like 20 years of organizing because I started when like there was anti-globalization when there was like that we are winning, and we actually believed we were to like now <laughs> and um, and I think just the question around mass organizing is a uh, is probably the biggest obstacle or problem for me personally to um, 
to really grapple with. Campaign work, easy. Organizing direct action, easy. You know, like even like Toro stuff is easy. But even begin to grapple of like what is what is a, a you know a, a socialist strategy and how do we start building a mass base around it around hegemony? That is when I'm like I don't know. I just want someone to swoop in and save me and like give me the answer because I've tried different experiments and like. You know, Corvin, you talked about like, we'll just start a socialist party. There are already a lot of communist and socialist parties that we can join. I joined one when I was 18, the communist party. And it was just like, um, yeah, it just didn't seem to like reflect what needed to happen at that time, you know? And so I guess like this, my conclusion to this podcast is like, I don't know how to deal with that question of mass organization, you know, because when I, when I look to other mass organizations, like a union or a party, I, they are so flawed and they become corrupted. They begin to, um, yeah, do the business unionism. Um, we can't even call the NDP socialists anymore because they took that out and that was their basis with the CCF. So that's my fear around that. And so where I, feel like I can kind of build some power is around like maybe the smaller stuff right now around the trainings, just disruptions, consciousness raising, and, um, and hopefully just like maintain strong links with other organizations who are trying to do that work and support them. Yeah. I, I have a number of things I want to pick up on uh, from what Charmaine said. And yeah, I agree in the case of uh, indigenous communities, First Nations and, and other indigenous communities who may at times uh, take direct action to assert their rights or uphold their laws. As uh, That's something that I, I've worked in solidarity with a lot of those struggles over the years. Um, but I also think we can learn from why they are powerful. One is, of course, that there's tremendous legitimacy to their to their struggles. And even in mainstream liberal discourse, that is, despite all the racism, recognized to some degree. I mean, it's highly conflicted. And it's also a part of the root of the conflict, of course, is that the Canadian state, the capitalist state, is predicated on seizure of indigenous resources and legally structured, like the whole state is legally structured around that purpose. And the modalities of how colonialism works in Canada are obfuscated through the bureaucratization, the incredible bureaucratization of it. And so this is one of the times when the reality becomes visible. So it does make visible that reality. And at the same time, it cuts under undercuts the mythology of Canadian tolerance and generosity and liberalism and so on. So I think that's part of the power of those, those struggles that even gets recognized among uh, liberal people liberals. And and I'm sure we can think of other cases where in extremely marginal positions, people have taken direct action that was both effective and necessary and also made sense, right? Like, but then there are times where you're just bearing witness or, you know, that that's important too. And so, yeah, I don't want to leave with the impression that, well, it's, if it doesn't win or it doesn't have mass support, it's not a good direct action. And on the question of the mass party, I think that is the, or the mass organization, that's what, what we're all struggling with. And lately I've just sort of thought, well, uh, what would happen if, you know, you just came up with a fairly simple platform that answered a lot of these things that people are feeling. I think there's an opening there to articulate a lot of these socialist ideas which I think is part of what the success of Bernie's campaign was. And so part of me wonders if, what if we just 
sort of started something and there was uptake, but then I come back to, you still need the leadership or you need the front people and then you're stuck in that dynamic. And, you know, can we do both? I guess is my question there. I, I'm not sure. On the other hand, can we keep deferring it? That's the other part of it, right? No, I, th- I think some of this is a to-be-continued discussion, but I'm not sure that we can wait for eight years or or that long to make a decision on this. And if we can't do it in Toronto and Ontario where there's such crisis, then I think we can't do it in Canada is what we're saying. And I, I just am unwilling to accept that conclusion personally. No, certainly. I mean, in, in Anglo-Canada, seems like this is where outside of Quebec is where the concentration of leftists, uh, this kind of concentration of leftists is in uh, in the country. But I think, I mean, I feel like in our discussion today has on the one hand sort of gone over what should leftists be doing that we're not doing. like And so, you know, be doing a lot more organizing and should we be doing direct action or not? Should we be doing elections or not? And I think the other thing is also like when we're doing what we're doing, how do we assess whether it's doing anything? <laughs> because like, how do we assess if what we're doing is worth continuing or not? Uh, how do we assess whether like, like, you know what, actually this is stupid. We should be able to call a failure a failure. And I think as leftists, we're pretty bad at that, uh, myself included. And so if we start doing something, we're just like, oh, no, this is pretty good. That's still like, you know, it's better than doing nothing. And so I think we need to be better than that. Yeah, well, I, I think that's an interesting that's an interesting question, and I also agree. If something isn't working, like wind it up, or or even if it is working, sometimes go out on a high note. Uh, that doesn't necessarily apply to socialist organizations, but uh, I've been part of groups. I was part of a Palestine solidarity group that I was one of the co-founders of, and we were pretty successful against the odds. And we also just decided, okay, we've been successful for however many years, and we're not sure we're going to be as successful in the future, so let's wind this up now and and close it down. But on the other hand, I think for many of us who've been part of these marginal struggles, measuring the success is not always easy because social change can be nonlinear. And to use like the Marxist language of, objective conditions and subjective conditions of the struggle to develop the subjective conditions is particularly the nonlinear part of the work. Mm -hmm. And so you can be doing what feels like not having any effect for a long time. And then suddenly one day you wake up and you won something huge and you're like, how did that happen? And it's really hard to trace exactly the effect back to those causes, but they sort of ripple out. Um, I think it's really important to always have the space to evaluate and ask the questions because I don't believe in self-boosting or, oh, we're doing great work or let's not beat ourselves up about this or, no, you ran a shitty campaign. That's like, <laughs> you know, like yeah, let's have a debrief. Yeah, or, or the political conditions change. Um, like I, I see this, it's so hard for me to assess like when I, in the organization I do with known as illegal to like understand success because definitely, Definitely, like a few years into the fight for sanctuary city, we're like, uh, you know, people are people are just aren't aren't into this, and you know, the capacity was changing, and I mean, maybe this is just like too radical, you know, um, and it was just like, no, we're just gonna like it's a, you know, we gotta believe it's a tangible goal and just work to it, and that's kind of like my kind of um, frustration is that engaging in small goals can be take over ten years. 
you know, and there's kind of no time to kind of think about, dream about uh, what's a, what's our larger goal, you know? And then when you win that, you're just kind of like, now let's pick another small goal. Mm-hmm. You know, um, another example was around indefinite detention, which no one knew about eight years ago. And now... Great, um, great campaign. Yeah. And so um, these are things like when we started the campaign eight years ago, I'm just like, like when you talk to everyday, everyday people, like when we did events and we, you know talk to media when we um, pamphleted people are just like well you know these people didn't get um get here legitimately like they're the bad migrants this is definitely like publicly like a losing cause and yet we still won some gains and now the you know now the number of detentions has lowered mind you a lot of people have been deported um but nonetheless it's actually now has been something that's visible in the public but it's um it feels exhausting, you know, um, and I think I think that's the slow work that needs to be done. But I agree with Corvin that, like, you know, we can't be this slow. Um, yet I feel like maybe we're almost in this kind of a political stage too. Like we talked about cancel culture, call it culture, where um, people can't get beyond their interpersonal differences. You know, um, people really hold true to their sectarianism, I guess, um, that maybe people, maybe we haven't realized how um, dire it is and that we need to start building to be something bigger. Like for me, I'm kind of like, forget like mass organizing for now. Can we just get all like the socialist and anti-capitalist movements in like one room just for a day and like talk about like how we can even turn the province around? But I don't even think that's on the table. You know, and so it's 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 weird how we're still organizing in silos. There's an organizing idea, concrete organizing idea. We want it to be concrete, so. Well, thanks for tuning in to this Patreon exclusive segment of Oats for Breakfast. And thanks for being a patron of the podcast. We really appreciate your support. We'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>